Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Avi Loeb about extraterrestrial. First, though, wanted to let you know that if you enjoy this chat or any of my conversations with authors enough to want to buy the book, I've made it simple for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and you can purchase it through bookshop.org. They don't pay me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this podcast, please do follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and and Facebook at Books on Pod. My name is Antonio Sadra. And I am Bob Stickold. We are the authors of When Brains Dream, Exploring the Science and Mystery of Sleep. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Ellinger. Hello, readers. Avi Loeb is the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard and a New York Times bestselling author. His sixth book is titled Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Avi, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. This book, Extraterrestrial, attempts to answer a couple of different questions. The first is an age-old inquiry. Are we alone? Or does life exist in the universe beyond Earth? And you believe that we were given a less than subtle answer to this question, are we alone, less than four years ago. What happened starting on April 19th, 2017 that spanned 11 days? Yeah, so in fact, it was the very first object that we discovered in the vicinity of the sun that came from outside the solar system and uh, sort of like finding an object in your backyard from the street. It saves you the trip. You don't need to go to the street to find out what's going on out there. And by the way, the distance to stars is vast. I mean, the nearest star is four light years away. So this was our first glimpse at an object that came from far away and it took it 10,000 years to traverse the solar system alone and probably millions or billions of years through interstellar space. And uh, of course, at first, astronomers assumed that it must be a comet or an asteroid, most likely a comet, which is a rock covered with ice so that when it gets close to the sun, the ice uh, evaporates and uh, creates a tail of gas and dust, as we see quite often. But there was no trail of gas or dust around this object. And the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very carefully around it and couldn't see any trace of carbon-based molecules. And so uh, clearly it was not a comet. But then uh, as the object was tumbling over eight hours, the amount of light, sunlight, that was reflected from it varied by a factor of 10, implying that the area that the object projected on the sky changed by a factor of 10 as it was tumbling. And in fact, the best fit for the reflected light was that of a flat object, pancake-shaped. Just think about a piece of paper tumbling in the wind. That would be a good model for this kind of object, which is very unusual. We haven't seen an object with such an extreme shape before. And then uh, it also exhibited an excess push away from the sun that declined inversely with distance squared. And since there were no gases coming off it, you couldn't invoke the rocket effect to push it. And the only explanation that I could think of is the reflection of sunlight giving it a push. And for that to be effective, the object needed to be thin, sort of like a sail pushed by light. And nature doesn't produce thin objects, sails. And so that was the origin of my suggestion that perhaps it's of artificial production. And it turns out that there was another object uh, discovered in September 2020, just a few months ago, 
that was given the name 2020 SO. It was discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii, PANSTARS. And this one also showed, exhibited an excess push by reflecting sunlight with no cometary tail. But the astronomers that discovered it figured out that actually it came from Earth. It was a rocket booster launched back in 1966, and it had thin walls, so it had a large area for its weight. And that explains why it was pushed by sunlight. And we know that we produced it artificially. The question is who produced Oumuamua, this object from 2017 that was discovered from outer space. Now is probably a pretty good time to point out something that I love about this book. Not only is it astronomical, but it has several other personalities. It's philosophical, something that is rooted in you going all the way back to your childhood, autobiographical, historical, as well as a critique of your profession and science on the whole. You grew up on a farm in a small village in Israel. What was your childhood like? So I remember it very fondly because... I connected with nature and I enjoyed going to the fields and the hills of the village I was born in and just being embedded in silence and thinking about important questions. And I would usually take a book with me, most often a philosophy book. I was interested in the deepest questions. And then I, you know, I I worked in the farm. I used to collect eggs every afternoon. So that kind of simplicity of life appealed to me. And Throughout my career, I always cherished it and tried to keep my childhood curiosity and the big picture. But at age 18, circumstances forced me. I was recruited to the Israeli military and I had two options, either to run in the fields or pursue some intellectual work in the context of physics. So I ended up doing physics and proposed a project that was supported by Reagan's Star Wars initiative in the mid-1980s. And that brought me to the U.S. and eventually I was offered a fellowship at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton under the condition that I'll switch to astrophysics. And then for five years, I studied the vocabulary. You know, it was not easy because I didn't know much about astrophysics. But then uh, eventually I ended up at Harvard University and within three years, I was tenured there. And then I realized that even though it was an arranged marriage, I'm actually married to my true love. Because in in astrophysics, there are very fundamental questions that have deep philosophical roots, like how did everything start, you know, in the early universe? And uh, where did life come from? And is there more in our neighborhood? Are we not only alone, but are we the smartest kid on the block, which is the subject of my book? I'm not a typical astronomer. I, I do not develop expertise in a very narrow niche and become the world expert in just one narrow aspect of astronomy, but rather I'm interested mostly in the big picture, and that makes me different. The science community has had a long-standing resistance to even looking for, much less believing, in life beyond Earth. Why have scientists resisted this to the point of condemnation for so long, Avi? Because this is something that they have turned their criticisms to you over the last four years now. Yeah, so... There are several possible reasons for this reluctance to even consider extraterrestrial technological relics in space. And one is that it takes people out of their comfort zone. I mean, in astronomy, we are used to dealing with objects, physical objects that do not possess any life. And that's been the field for decades. And 
I remember going out of a room uh, where a lecture was given on uh, Oumuamua and my colleague said, uh, this object is so weird, I wish it never existed. And to me, that's appalling because when nature gives you something that doesn't quite line up with what you expected, you should be very happy about it because it allows you to learn something new. But instead, many scientists prefer to stay within their comfort zone and not take any risks, not put any skin in the game in terms of making predictions that could be falsified. And and of course, since we don't have any direct evidence for extraterrestrial intelligence, then most people prefer to avoid any controversy. And But it goes beyond that because a lot of scientists, they want to distance themselves from the public, from reports about unidentified flying objects or the science fiction discussions, just to put themselves on a pedestal, feeling that, you know, science is a way of demonstrating that you are smart. To me, that is also uh, inappropriate because uh, if you go back to ancient history, there were people that argued that the human body has a soul and therefore anatomy should be forbidden, shouldn't dissect the human body. And uh, imagine if scientists would say, this is a controversial subject. There are some people saying the human body has a soul and others denying it. And we don't want to deal with any controversy. Where would modern medicine be? The point is science has an obligation to attend to a subject that is of great interest to the public and clear it up through the scientific method by collecting evidence and figuring out what's going on. And there is no question more important than are we the smartest kid on the block because it would have a huge impact on society in terms of the way our aspirations for space, the way we conceive ourselves in terms of our place in the universe, our religious beliefs. It will have a huge impact on the way we think about ourselves. And given that, and given that the public is extremely interested in that, and the public funds science, I find it completely inappropriate for the scientific community to ridicule any discussion on this possibility. Moreover, you know, we know that the Sun-Earth system is not really special because half of the Sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. So if you replicate the circumstances, you might as well get similar outcomes. Why should we assume that we are unique and special and that making the conjecture that there are other technological civilizations is extraordinary? The way people say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. First of all, it's not extraordinary because we exist and conditions similar to what we find in our backyard are duplicated in billions of other systems just within the Milky Way galaxy. And second, I would argue extraordinary conservatism leads to extraordinary ignorance. That's very well said there. And in explaining this need for scientists, and let's be honest, this applies to people in general in 2021, where so many folks are dug in on their beliefs and unwilling to even listen to the other side, much less consider whether they are right or wrong. To get beyond the antiquated thinking of things, you explain this with a personal anecdote that had to do with the height of a church in a European town. What happened? Yeah, so... I used to visit a town in Germany and I would always be put in a hotel room that had slanted ceiling where I couldn't really stand up in the shower. (laughs) It was very uncomfortable. And at some point I asked for a double room because of that. And actually that is something I don't mention in the book. But when I got to the receptionist after ordering a double room, she asked me, where is your wife? (laughs) And I said, no, I'm alone here. And And she said, oh, I understand. She thought that I'm having an affair and I'm bringing someone. I said, no, I just need the space. And she said, oh, okay, well, I'll give you a bigger room. 
But then I asked my hosts, why is it that there is so little space for a single room in that town, you know, in a hotel? And they explained to me that no building is allowed to be taller than the church. That's the rule for centuries. And so I asked them, okay, well, if that's the rule, why not make the church taller? <laughs> and they said, uh, they said, we haven't thought about it. <laughs> so to me, it shows how thinking outside the box could potentially solve a problem. In this case, making the church taller would allow them more space in their hotel rooms. What's the problem with that? No, they haven't thought about it. Such a great philosopher's question to a bizarre, antiquated answer. Now, Extraterrestrial does ask two primary questions. The first being, are we alone? The second question you ask is, assuming that there was or is or maybe even will be life beyond Earth, are we humans ready for it? Are we and why or why not? I don't think so, but given the reaction to my proposal, I just suggested to put this possibility on the table that we have witnessed an artificial object based on the evidence, the fact that it showed six anomalies, okay, and I described them in my book. I was driven by the evidence, not by wild speculations about some abstract uh, ideas, you know, it, it was an object that looked very different, and I'm saying, okay, it's so different. You're welcome to try and explain those anomalies in a different way. But at least this object should be considered as a possible artificial object. And the alternatives that people proposed, and there were some people that took the anomalies seriously, the alternatives they proposed were not very appealing. They had significant flaws. One suggestion was that it's a hydrogen iceberg so that you can't see the cometary tail because hydrogen is transparent. And the problem with that is hydrogen iceberg the size of a football field will be evaporated very quickly and not survive the journey. Another one was that it's a dust bunny, a collection of dust particles in a cloud that is a hundred times less dense than air. And the problem of that is when it gets close to the sun, it will be heated by hundreds of degrees and such a cloud will not have the material strength to maintain its integrity. And there was another suggestion, maybe it's a fragment from a disrupted object that passes close to a star, the problem with that is you would get elongated, cigar-shaped objects, whereas Oumuamua, the 90% confidence from analyzing the reflected light, appeared to be best described as a flat object, pancake-shaped. So the alternatives that were put on the table did not sound more appealing than an artificial origin. And I say, you know, that's the way science is done. You put the possible explanations on the table rather than say, I know the answer in advance. You have to explain the anomalies. That's the scientific process. You can't just say, I think it's a rock and ignore the anomalies. That is not a viable option. And unfortunately, most of the scientists went that way. They didn't want to get into a controversial discussion and they just ignored the facts. And my point is, Let's just collect more evidence about the next object that comes around and looks as weird. And you know that is likely to happen in the next few years. And then we can send a spacecraft with a camera such that it will take a close-up photo of this object. And you know it's said very often that a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, <laughs> the number of words in my book. You believe that astronomy would benefit from an expansion with a subset called space archaeology. What would the initial goals be with space archaeology? 
Right. So in the past 70 years, we've been searching for radio signals from other civilizations, and that is equivalent to trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be alive to have that conversation. And for example, on Earth, we cannot have a phone conversation with the Mayans. The Mayan culture is not around anymore, but we can find that they existed from the relics they left behind. And we can find them through archaeology, through digging into the ground in the right place. And so the same thing can be done in space. We know that most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun. And as a result, if they had technological civilizations like ours, those may have died by now, but they may have sent equipment into space like we did. Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizons. So we may find their relics in space. And after a few billion years, they may not be functional, but they will tell us that a civilization existed. And I call it space archaeology, searching for those. And, you know, if we find a piece of equipment, we could potentially land on it and examine it and maybe even import the technology down to Earth if it looks very appealing. That could save us millions of years in development. How big of a problem is the space junk that we've created around the Earth's orbital plane? And is there an obvious solution to this ever-growing trash heap in space? That's a major issue because it could damage satellites. The relative speed at which trash is moving is so high that it's just like an explosive when it hits a satellite. So there are ways of disposing it. For example, um, shining a laser on some or bringing them down so that they burn up in the atmosphere, these smaller objects. But it's definitely becoming a bigger and bigger problem and we have to resolve it, given the fact that now um, SpaceX and other organizations are trying to launch uh, constellations of communication satellites, tens of thousands of them, and there would be more and more objects around Earth. By the way, that is another technological signature. If you were to observe a planet and you would see evidence for a swarm of uh, satellites around it, it could tell you that there is a technological civilization there. Was there anything that stood out to you about NASA's Perseverance rover making it to Mars and sending back video of its surroundings? The videos look similar to what we expected so far, but of course the real uh, question is, can Perseverance find evidence for life that may have existed when Mars had an atmosphere and oceans on its uh, surface? And that would be the key question. And if we do find life, there are two possibilities. Either it resembles life on Earth or it looks very different. If it resembles life on Earth, again, there are two possible interpretations. One, that the life was shared between the two planets because we know that there are Martian rocks that arrived to Earth, we found some, and we know that rocks from Earth arrived to Mars. So it's possible that life was shared between the two planets that are relatively close to each other through rocks. You know, it survived the journey in the deep interior of rocks that made it to the other planet. So then it's possible that we are all uh, Martians in principle, you know, that life on Earth came from Mars. That's one possibility. And of course, there is the possibility that there is only one path to making life that in fact both planets arrived at the same solution. But there is another option, which is that life on Mars would look very different than life on Earth, that the DNA structure would not resemble ours at all. And that would say that first, there was no exchange of life between the planets. And second, that there are multiple paths to making life. And that would be extremely interesting. So 
I'm mostly interested not only in the question of whether there is microbial life or, or some other evidence for life, but whether that life resembles the one we find on Earth. It was just reported that a space plasma hurricane was detected and recording in the Earth's upper atmosphere for the first time ever back in 2014. Should we be concerned about this? Oh, definitely. We know that there was a storm, a, a huge um, eruption on the sun, which caused the so-called Carrington event about 150 years ago. And if it happened today, we would have losses at the few trillions because of damage that it would have caused to satellites, to power grids, to communication. Back in the mid-19th century, when it happened, the Carrington event, there wasn't much technological infrastructure on Earth. And that's why the economic damage was very limited. But now we have so much equipment that we rely on, including satellites, power grids, uh, you know, communication uh, and computers and so forth. And I don't think we are protected enough from such a major storm. And we might have one in the coming decades. And that's a, an underappreciated risk. You know, people talk about pandemics, about climate change, but not much about potential storm on the sun that will generate an eruption that will impact the plasma blob that you were talking about, but much bigger than that, that will hit the earth and cause uh, damage. And finally, Avi, you have a drawer in your office that is simply labeled ideas, a place where you can store questions whose answers that you eventually want to find. What is the most pressing question in that file right now? <laughs> well, the most pressing question is, uh, is there another technological civilization out there? And um, my latest on that is thinking about a mission that would be able to bring a camera within the Earth's diameter to the next weird object like Oumuamua. How to design such a mission? Do we want to send it from Earth when we notice such an object a year in advance of it getting close to us? Or do we want to deploy a lot of cameras within the orbit of the Earth around the Sun such that one of them would be close to the object when it passes nearby? So I'm looking into that and, you know, that's the latest. I'm really interested in this as a way of ushering space archaeology. Avi Loeb is the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard and a New York Times bestselling author. His sixth book is titled Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Avi, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for this book and thank you for all that you're doing to try and inform people on the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligence. Thank you for hosting me. And one of the reasons I search for intelligence in the sky is because I don't often find it here on Earth. <laughs> That's very well said. Have a good afternoon, Avi. Bye-bye. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder to check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. It helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.